The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And today, Keith, we have a very, very interesting show, but I know that you want to talk about uh, some Answers in Genesis uh, seminar that's coming up. Yep, I've got a couple of news items that are worthy of reporting, but did you have a good Thanksgiving, Mike? Had a wonderful Thanksgiving, praise the Lord. Hope our listeners did too. I got to have the kids home from college, and they're all packing up and driving off today, as a matter of fact. So they're all on the road while we're talking, going back to their college dorms. Oh, well. Yeah. At le- least they got one good uh, home-cooked meal before uh, finals. Exactly right. Well, yeah, there is going to be another Answers in Genesis program in the area. This one is at Cumberland County Community Church, and that is down in Millville on 1800 East Broad Street in Millville. The speaker is going to be Carl Kirby. And that is next weekend, December 6th and 7th. So that's Sunday and Monday. He's going to be speaking twice for services Sunday morning. That's 9 o'clock. He's going to be talking about, is God relevant? Mm. Or, I'm sorry, is Genesis relevant? Uh, Then the second uh, service, he'll be doing the Power of Hollywood. That's at 1045. Then in the uh, evening at 6 p.m., he's going to be talking about the best evidences for creation. So that should be a good one. Then Monday, again, he'll be talking at 7 p.m. about fossils. Are they our friend or a foe? So you have a telephone number, Keith? Let me see if there is telephone number. That may be too small for me to read. 856 uh, that's going to be too small. Oh, 327 2222. Possibly. Okay. Now but this... they have a great website. Now, here's a, here's a bigger. Yeah, I was right. 856 327 2222. Okay, and this is the same group of people that uh, we heard at, uh, at the uh, Christian School, the Pilgrim Academy um, yes. near Smithville. And they have a terrific website, too, Answers in Genesis, with tons of archived articles, some of them for the general public, but some at a very high scientific level. So if you're doing research on the topic of uh, origins, and uh, particularly if you're asking the question, is the Earth old or young, this is a great website. Or if you want to know more about the possibility of Noah's flood, this is a great website for that kind of research. And they have a a great library um, of of traveling books that they'll... uh uh, put out on a table and sell. I, in fact, I bought uh, five scientific uh, books that are rooted in uh, cr- the Christian faith and uh, evidence for creation and, and so forth. Yeah. So Excellent. I'm, uh, I'm yeah, very excited about that. Can't mm-hmm. get enough of their books. All right, there's a item in the news that came from uh, uh, Time magazine, and the headline is, Chemicals in Plastics May Cause Feminine Behavior in Boys. Did you see this, Mike? I did not. Well, this is particularly interesting because it actually backs up previous studies that have suggested that prenatal exposure to phthalates, and those are chemicals that are 
commonly found in household plastic items. So the kinds of things that you might store food in, uh, that those the previous studies showed that they could lower testosterone pr- uh, production and impair the genital development uh, of children, newborn children. Well, this study, which was published in the International Journal of Andrology, finds that the chemicals can have a longer-term influence than just what happens to the infant after it's born and can actually influence gender identity and play behaviors amongst boys. Hmm. So uh, it's been you know, long argued whether homosexuality is genetic or uh, behavioral, and there's actually a third option, which is that it's developmental. Hmm. Now, this throws in another monkey wrench into the gears. Is the developmental problems caused by phthalate poisoning? That's very interesting. And one of the things that I want to throw up there, just for the listening moms uh, who use microwave ovens, you should never, ever microwave anything that's in a plastic dish, cup, or bowl, uh, especially a Tupperware-type container, because it, uh, it actually causes a vaporization of the polymers in that plastic. And uh, long thought that it's potentially um, um, cancer-inducing, mm. like the PVCs and so forth. So uh, I don't know if that was part of the exposure that moms were getting, but it certainly has to do with vaporization of those uh, chemical polymers uh, during the microwaving process. So that's a no-no. You should always use a, a china or a glass-type plate, bowl, or uh, cup. Great. Good advice from our doctor on the studio. Um, I wanted to mention to people, we've been getting a lot of articles and news information from World Magazine, but I don't. we haven't actually talked about how important World Magazine is. I think you get World Magazine too, we, don't you? We get World Magazine not only at home, but also for the waiting room in my office, and it's pretty much uh, uh, comparable to a Time Magazine with a Christian worldview slant. Yeah, it's and very well written, great reviews of books and, and movies and uh, the latest news items. So, and with some terrific analysis, this is a, a very well put together publication. Mm-hmm. Um, I found, I came across a website that I thought was very interesting. It looks like it's being sponsored by Focus on the Family. It's called standforchristmas.com. Now, I think this is a great idea. What they're doing is people can log in and then you can put in information about the kinds of experiences that you've had at stores, whether they're recognizing Christmas or they're trying to lump it all into just happy holidays. And you can rank the different retail outlets. So they have uh, these rankings that are changing as more and more people log in. And I just briefly wrote down a, a few minutes ago what the what the current rankings are. Right now, those retailers who are considered friendly to Christmas is Bass Pro Shops, Cabela's, Land's End, and Kmart. Then they have another category called Negligent, which the retailer Lane Bryant got a perfect 100% score for Negligence of Christmas. So apparently, they if you go to Lane Bryant, they don't know that Christmas is happening yet. But that may not be such a bad thing as you know, it's only just finished being Thanksgiving, right? My objection has been they start the Christmas season way too early, so maybe Lane Bryant has got that on their mind. But then there's the offensive category. So if you are offensive to 
Christmas, you rank high on the offensive list, and that is currently right now. It was uh, about uh, three or four days ago, it was Gap was number one, but now they've been surpassed by Banana Republic. Uh, then comes Gap, and then Best Buy. So take that into consideration when you are out there shopping for Christmas gifts. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And you can call us today, 609-398-1020. I've got a couple more news items. This, I'm just looking, I, I uh, copied off the entire article and put it into my notes section here. There's a story coming out of Egypt that a researchers, and this is published in the Middle East Media Research Institute, have found coins that they claim bear the name of Joseph. So this is very exciting news. Uh, they claim that there are inscriptions that clearly indicate that these are coins and that uh, some of the coins have the name Joseph on them. So that's kind of exciting. We'll have to wait and see if that is confirmed uh, by uh, other researchers. Sometimes these very exciting things come out. It's just the same with evolution. You know, some archaeologists or, or um, paleontologists will claim, oh, I found the next missing link, you know, and then it gets a big splash, and then a few weeks later there's a retraction because the guy who says he discovered it, of course, is looking for fame and fortune. And so like that... Uh, monkey-looking thing that they claimed maybe six months ago. It looked like a tiny monkey, and they said this was a forerunner, and turns out it had nothing to do with uh, any uh, uh, proposed uh, evolutionary category. But you don't, you know, that, that hits page 10, not page 1. Uh, let's see, so uh, that was the Egyptian thing, and then I've got one more. Um, Ah, this was very interesting. Now, this was published in Washington Post, and it's about some genetic information that's coming out of these population studies. Have you seen any of this study uh, being sponsored a lot by National Geographic and some other big uh, institutions? And they're doing DNA studies to see how the population has spread out. Now, they have this out-of-Africa theory that human beings came out of Africa, moved into the Middle East, and then spread across the globe from the Middle East. If you actually look at the data, though, the, uh, the, the highest measurement of um, variability, and that's what they then know is the oldest population of the genome, that actually is in the Middle East. But it doesn't fit their theory. So when they draw, they, they have the data points all on a graph, and then they draw a trend line. Their trend line, they, it points to Africa. Instead of Babel. Instead of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So, so you, have to, you do have to look at the data yourself. You just can't accept the conclusions because they are influenced by philosophical concepts like naturalism. So, but this particular article mentions that you can break all the gen the gene type, the uh, genetic information for human beings into three groups. 
So there is an African gene group, there's a European gene group, and then there is a um, Asian gene group. Now, isn't that interesting that the Bible also breaks down all of humanity into three groups? Do you know what they are? No? Think Noah's flood, Noah, and his three sons. sons. Yes. There you Ham, go. Shem, and Japheth, and of course they had three different three wives. Three wives. That makes a separate gene pool. Isn't that interesting? So just another confirmation for those who are looking for confirmations out there. Okay, well, that's it for news items. Oh, no, there is one more. I don't want to forget. Um, we're going to be having a Bible study in Hamilton for the Truth Project. Now, if you haven't heard of the Truth Project, you can look it up online. It's thetruthproject.org. Fabulous website. Um, really terrific uh, production quality is what I'm trying to say. And this all being done by Focus on the Family also. Their main uh, guy is Del Tackett. He does the teaching for the Bible study. It's one of those DVD Bible studies that you watch the DVD and then talk about it afterwards. And that's going to be starting up in Hamilton in January. If you're interested in it, you can contact the website. I've got a little promo clip that uh, our sound engineer, John, will play. Right now. You are about to take what could well be the most important tour of your life. It's going to be a worldview tour. We are going to turn and gaze upon the face of God. What should we hear? What should we see? You are going to be amazed. Why did Jesus come into the world? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know? From time to time, we're going to bring some experts into the classroom. The world is reeling with uncertainty. It's almost like it's in the air. Truth is fundamentally about who God is. We're challenged to either confront culture, to abandon it, or transform it. Is our culture filled with lies? This is a battle of worldviews. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? evil. What is it? Where did it come from? Why is it in the world? Who is God? Who is God? Who is man? What does God say about who man is? What takes us captive? What is insanity? What is the world's view of work? God is a God of social order. We're going to look at economic, art, media, music, and literature in this sphere of labor. We're going to look at the area of philosophy and ethics. Everything is about relationships. There is no direction you can travel in which God has not spoken. How do I know I exist? And if I do exist, why do I exist? If I think I exist, where did that thought come from? We're going to build the final pillar of history. We're going to look at the American experiment. Intimacy, union, communion, fellowship, love. The God of the universe dwells within me? Wow. So that is going to be a really terrific Bible study starting up in January on Thursday nights. If you're interested, you can go to evidenceforfaith.com website. There's a contact page, and just put your name and information down, and we'll get in contact with you about that Bible study. Well, Keith, today we're going to be talking about something that's uh, near and dear to your heart as well as mine, and it's why Christian knowledge matters yep. and what the competing worldviews are that are systematically disassembling the relevance of Christian knowledge in today's schools and in today's thought processes. That's right. 
Yeah, this comes from a lecture that I heard while I was down in New Orleans last week. I went to the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting, and as part or actually after that meeting, that's where all the professors and authors and academics get together and do their conference. And then because they're all together in one spot in the U.S., they will pick a church or a seminary to host a conference for the lay people. So they also did the 2009 Evangelical Philosophical Society Apologetics Conference, and that was at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. So I went to that and took a few of the courses there that were for the lay people. And this talk that you're talking about was delivered by Dr. J.P. Moreland. He is a fascinating guy. He's an author, professor, really, really smart guy. Any of his books I highly recommend, J.P. Moreland. So he gave this very good introduction talk about the situation that we're in, that we find ourselves as Christians competing against non-Christians and the thought processes that they go through. Yeah, whenever we're at work in a situation where we want to talk about our faith, there's a definite tension that's created if you're trying to evangelize and or create disciples. And this is something that's being brought on by the secular world. And um, um, I think all of us have experienced it whenever we try to openly define our faith or share our faith with other people. Uh, apparently they don't have the time for it, or they don't want to hear it, or maybe that's good for you, but it doesn't work for me. I've already right. tried that. Right. And there's a whole bunch of other um, uh, disclaimers that people will throw at you to get to get you away from them. Right. And he he opened with a, a, uh, an example from an editorial by a major newspaper that said that the world is divided by worldview, and it claimed that there are two sides: the secular versus the ethical monotheists. And that is really true. Um, of course, he's lumping Christians in with um, Muslims, too. Mm-hmm. All um, They would be included as ethical monotheists. As would the Jews. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's us guys, us religious people, mm-hmm. against the world, basically. And then he also quoted a quote from Robert Reich, you know, who was labor secretary under President Clinton, who said that the he wrote an op-ed piece that was published in a major newspaper claiming that the true danger to the United States was Christians. Wow. Yeah. Very scary. Very, Very sobering. Scary. Yep. So we are now the enemy. Exactly. Well, if they're on the side of Satan, I can see his point of view. <laughs> we are the enemy. So Dr. Moreland then tells us that there's basically a three-way worldview struggle in the West. Now, not talking about the East, not talking about Islam and their struggle against the West, but within the West, there's a three-way struggle. You've got scientific naturalism, which yeah. scientific naturalism you're is familiar with. Uh, something that I'm very familiar with because I was a scientific naturalist at one time, and that's basically uh, defined by science being true knowledge. It's testable. You can see it. You can feel it. You can smell it. You can hear it. It's measurable in a laboratory sense. For instance, TV waves, we can't see them, nor can we hear them or feel them. We can certainly measure them at a frequency that's defined by uh, the FCC. Right. Yep. So knowledge only comes from that. Right. And then the other uh, worldview is 
postmodernism. Mm. Yeah, yeah, postmodernism. Postmodernism, I think, is the place that our current president is trying to define the United States because in Paris, shortly after he took office, he made a speech that basically said that we were no longer a Christian nation and that we're moving in the direction of where Europe is, and they certainly are in the postmodernist um, um, mindset, mm-hmm. in that, um, you know, true knowledge only comes from science. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, scientific naturalism. Postmodernism, true true knowledge is kind of a personal thing. It's a yeah. cultural thing. Um, there really isn't any truth. There's no grand narrative that can explain everything. And then the final is, of course, Christianity. So now they claim that uh, no one can know what's true mm. about any religion, including Christianity. So we don't really know as Christians. We don't really know things or have knowledge. What we have is faith or belief. And the whole world considers, including Christians, considers knowledge as better than belief. Knowledge is something more valuable. For instance, you, Mike, as an internal medicine physician, you have great standing in society, socially, because you are looked upon as a person with knowledge. You are valuable to society because you're, you have knowledge. Now, if someone else, let's say a pastor, possibly could have gone to just as much schooling, just as rigorous an education as you went through, possibly, what would society look at that person as? Not as somebody with knowledge, somebody with belief, and so therefore, no authority. Mm. So, you know, who's more likely to be asked to be interviewed on a TV program as an expert on a certain situation, a pastor? No. No. An archaeologist with a PhD. Right. Or some other scientist. Exactly. Yep. So ministers don't have knowledge, therefore they don't have any authority. And uh, this is really uh, unfortunate. It's, it's not true. So Dr. Moreland then goes into the nature of knowledge. What kinds of things can we know? Well, First of all, there's knowledge by thought. Now, that's the kind of knowledge that we've already been talking about little bit, a little bit. If you have adequate reasons, you're thinking logically, then you have knowledge. So that's the kind of thing that true belief is based on. The true, true Christian belief is based on knowledge by thought. That's not based only on that. It's also based on other forms of knowledge that are just as valuable and I think you'll agree when we explain them. First of all, there's knowledge by experience, right? I mean, you can know things not because some scientist told you, but because you experienced them, right? I mean, your acquaintance with it. Um, This can be in the realm of uh, human relationships. This could be actually my senses right now. You know, I'm holding this piece of paper. I have knowledge about it by experience, no matter what anybody told me about this piece of paper, I actually have real knowledge about it because I'm holding it. Um, it could also be pain, right? You know, if I'm feeling pain in my stomach, no one else can experience that. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. It's not real knowledge. I do have knowledge even though only I'm the only one experiencing it. And that can be the same thing with spiritual experiences too. Many of us have had real spiritual experiences, either with good um, spirits 
or evil spirits. Mm-hmm. And those, we know because we've experienced them that they are real. We have true knowledge about those things. But just because no one else saw it, it's the same thing with my pain. You know, you can't feel my pain. You just have to trust me that I'm telling you the truth. I did feel that pain. So your knowledge and your experience aren't necessarily valid because it doesn't exist for, let's say, the scientific community. Right. They can stand around and say, well, there's nothing wrong with your stomach, but I'm actually feeling the pain. So, and that is true knowledge. And you, as I'm sure you as a physician, when a patient comes to you and says, I have pain, you take it on face value. Mm-hmm. You don't just assume, oh, well, I don't think there's anything wrong, you know, right? Well, one of the things that I experience frequently in my own practice is that I'll get a new patient who's been on what I call the medical merry-go-round because they have a problem that's been tested and x-rayed and ultrasounded and CAT scanned and MRI'd and everything is coming back normal. So then they're told that this is all in their head. Mm-hmm. Which it okay. may, which it actually may be. So the challenge that I face is that I have to gather all of that information, try to synthesize it, put it together, and then decide if there's something else that was missed by either previous testing or previous history and or physical taking. Right. And then I have to test for that. So there's knowledge by experience. There's also knowledge from know-how. And this means things like skill. On-the-job training type thing. Right, you know, exactly. You, you can be in the field doing something for 15 years, doing computer work and so forth, and you have a college grad coming up right under you, but right. you have a lot more knowledge than he has. Exactly Because right. it's practical experience. Exactly. And that can also be found in the spiritual realm. In Christians have knowledge from know-how or skill. For instance, in prayer. We know many Christians who are much better at prayer because of their actual skill from doing, from learning. Uh, you can have know-how in forgiveness, in forgiving others, because you have done it enough that you know how to do it. So those are the areas of thought, areas of knowledge that are real forms of knowledge and not limited just to knowledge by thought. But Christianity still, he emphasized, was based um, on true belief based on thought, knowledge, logic. So our Christian faith is trusting what we know to be true, not a blind faith. Like the world says, if there's no knowledge, then there's no basis for things like ethics or theology. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we're talking about a conference that I recently attended an apologetics conference down in New Orleans. Well, this talk by J.P. Moreland uh, went on. He has a, a, a favorite term that he uses to describe what has been happening to our generation since the 1960s, and that's the empty self. And he describes how since the 60s, people have focused so much on selfish behavior, which he calls an inordinate, inordinate individualism. So, you know, individualism is a good thing, but it can be overdone. Mm -hmm. And he gives an example of going to a school function where kids lined up and they were going to be telling the parents at this function why they were not going to be using drugs in the future. And he made the prediction to a parent next to him that my guess is that these kids will all say 
for selfish reasons why they're not going to take drugs. And sure enough, they, you know, it's because I, I don't, I want to be able to get, go to college. Another kid, I want to be able to have a good job in the future. Um, I don't want to get sick and maybe die. I don't want to be like Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> and all had to do with the self. No, there was nothing about, I wouldn't want to embarrass my family. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to uh, degrade someone else. I wouldn't want to put someone else through the suffering that would happen if I took, took drugs. Or um, some outside thing like, because the Bible says I shouldn't do it. No one said that. It was all based on selfish reasons. And then he mentions that uh, about the infantility of people today, that they just don't grow up, Mm. you know. There's definitely a delayed adolescence. We're seeing this more and more in that the uh, kids go to school, they graduate from high school, they either get a job or they go into college, but they never leave the home where they're getting three square meals and clean sheets and and, and a roof over their heads, and uh, they have no motivation to move on and become an independent thinker or liver. Yep. And then passivity. You know, they're not proactive in life. So uh, there's this general trend towards what he calls the empty self, but you could really call uh, selfishness, you know. Um, And that's because of this view of separating knowledge from belief. Yeah, I call it the uh, I, me, mine generation. I, me, mine it's all about me, it's mine, and, uh, and so forth. So he characterizes then five social shifts that have resulted from this abandoning, uh, this, the idea that there can be non-empirical knowledge, which we just discussed. So knowledge of God, then, if you Im- abandon non-empirical knowledge, then that just leaves blind faith. So now non-empirical, we mean things that you can't touch, feel. Measure. Right. Uh, the second one is um, character, personal character, moving towards a satisfaction of desire. Right? You and and the problem is if you if you can't know truth, then you can't pursue it. You can't pursue truth or goodness or character mm-hmm. because those are things that are non-empirical. Therefore, can't be known. Therefore, why should I spend my life trying to improve myself? character-wise. These are things that can't be known. Yeah, this is one of those things that leads to the passivity of this generation. Yep. And uh, I call it analysis paralysis. They're being bombarded with all these thoughts and worldview sets and, and so forth that they're they're paralyzed and they're utterly stuck and in they, a rut and that's they can't right. move on. And they think that they're ultimately unimportant or at least unknowable. And if they're unknowable, they're unimportant. Then there's a shift, the third shift in society has been from freedom, the true definition of freedom, towards this concept of freedom of the right to do what I want to do, that somehow that means freedom. But the old definition of freedom was the power to do what I ought to do. This is the kind of freedom that our founding fathers were trying to set up for us. Any idea, do you have any... Um, reason to think that the Founding Fathers, when they talked about men and women being free, that that meant free to do whatever you wanted, free to be immoral? No. Of course, they had no concept of that at all. So the example he gave is, uh, are you free to play the piano? Well, okay, there's a piano in the room. 
I'm free to play it. If I don't know how to play the piano, how am I free to play the piano? I have no knowledge. I have no knowledge base of what it means to freely play the piano, right? Same thing with character. Unless I have knowledge of what it means, what the difference between right and wrong is, and have incorporated that into my life, mm. I don't have freedom. I'm not free. I'm stuck. I am a slave to my own personal wants and desires, which then control me. If you don't know what integrity is, or you have no role models who are modeling integrity, you can't become an, a man of integrity yourself. Right. You have to have that knowledge. You have to right. gain that knowledge. So then the fourth shift is from concepts of virtue and duty to the concept of rights. Okay, And again, for virtue and duty, that's very similar to personal character. You've got to have knowledge. You have to have knowledge as to what your duty is. But if those things are unimportant, those things can't be proved by science, then I, can, I am allowed to just claim rights. I have the right to this, right? And fifthly, the change, the shift in society from tolerance, the classic definition of tolerance, to contemporary concept of tolerance, which is don't judge someone and no beliefs are wrong, hmm. right? Don't judge anyone. That's being tolerant. No one's beliefs are wrong. That's being tolerant. Well, that's not the classic idea. You, I'm sure you can give the classic tolerance explanation of tolerance. Okay, classically tolerance was, even though I disagree with you, I will be nice to you. I will accept that we disagree, right? So that's what it means to tolerate somebody. It means I disagree with you. If I agreed with you, am I tolerating you? No, you're in agreement. Exactly. You can only tolerate someone whom you disagree with. And it had the concept of uh, things that were important. You know, it's not that, you know, we tolerate that um, our wife likes to listen to a different kind of music than we do. That That's not what we mean by tolerance. You know, I tolerate my wife, you know, she likes um, movie movie show tunes, and I don't. No, you know, we're talking about big issues and but it assumes that you have knowledge, right? You have knowledge of your position. I have knowledge of my position. And yet I choose to get along with you to not badger you and belittle you because I tolerate you. That's the Christian view of tolerance, and we've moved away from that now. And that's all has to do with this concept of knowledge um, being non-empirical knowledge not existing. So how do we fix that? We have to recover knowledge as a solution to the world's problems, and that's the ministry of apologetics. That's what you and I do on the air every week, is yep. we try to restore that knowledge base that our society is losing. Essentially, we're trying to explain why we believe what we believe in, and we're trying to remove any obstacles or walls that might have been built up over the uh, last few decades so that people have a, uh, a true understanding and knowledge of why they truly believe. Exactly. And why they can share it with other people without being afraid. Yep. Yep. Okay. If you have just joined us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. If you'd like to call in, the number is 609-398-1020. 
Or if you want to email us, you can reach us through the Evidence for Faith website, evidenceforfaith.com, evidence, the number four, faith.com. Well, the next class that I took was about the gospel narratives. What are they? What kind of genre are the gospels? This was taught by Craig Keener, who is at Eastern University, and he did a wonderful job. That's exactly where my uh, son goes to college. Yeah. In fact, he's on his way back right now. Yep, he's going back to Eastern. I don't know if he knows uh, Professor Keener, but he did a fabulous presentation. He talked about um, the fact that when the major media wants to discuss the Gospels, either the Gospels that are in the canon of the New Testament or some other Gnostic Gospels or things that have been discovered in 2nd, 3rd century, uh, they always go right to the Jesus Seminar people. Those people are pushed forward. And they have a very uh, critical, very negative view of the New Testament. So if we take a look at what's actually going on in the New Testament, it helps us see these people really don't know what they're talking about, and they are very low down on the pecking order amongst uh, New Testament scholars. But still, they get pushed to the front by the media. So, so he talked about, you know, what are what what's the genre of the Gospels? Are they a myth? Is this mythical literature that you're reading when you read the Gospels? No, it's a it's a historical biography. Right, that's right. It fits the pattern of ancient biography. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't fit the pattern of modern biographies. If you were to write a biography about me because you think my life was such so importantly lived that you had to write a biography about me, Mike, hint, hint, then <laughs> <laughs> you would uh, use a modern biography style. You would make sure that everything was very clearly uh, in chronological order, um, Things like that. But that actually wasn't so much the ancient biography style. But if we look back at other ancient biographies, biographies written by Pliny, Lucian, Polybius, other ancients, they did actually in those days practice critical history. They did uh, very carefully uh, record things, and they wanted to be known for their accuracy. They were focused on the truth. Um, now, occasionally some of them did spice it up a little bit, and that was okay to do in those days. Um, people like Plutarch and Livy, if you've ever read Plutarch's Lives, uh, Livy's History of Early Rome, uh, they get the information uh, basically right, but sometimes they'll spice things up a bit and make it a little more interesting and add a moral kind of a, a lesson. Um, but then there were other people uh, people like Tacitus, Suetonius, that absolutely stuck only to the facts. Then you have guys like Josephus, who are a little bit in between, pretty much predominantly stuck exactly to the facts, but it just occasionally would spice things up a little bit. So you can evaluate the level of accuracy of the writers by how well did they stick to their sources, how well did they stick to the facts, and given that at the time it was allowed to uh, vary things, like freedom for rewording uh, is an example. So sometimes you'll see things in one uh, part of the New Testament, and uh, maybe it talks about um, uh, 
uh, God is not willing that anyone should perish, say. And then somewhere else it'll say, uh, it's, it'll be the same kind of message, but it'll be a little bit differently worded. Now, uh, it could either be that those were two different speeches being given, say, by Jesus, or it's that that um, it, it was permitted to give your essentially your own wording for what was being said, as long as you got the accuracy down. So what do we find when we look at the Gospels? Well, Luke, uh, in the very beginning of his Gospel, explains what he's doing. So this is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Maybe, Mike, you want to read it? I, I printed it out so we could uh, get it correct. Mm-hmm. And this is Luke 1, 1 through 4, from the NIV. It says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, now, so Luke very carefully tells us some very important things. One is that in verse 1, we see that written sources were available to Luke. Okay, so, and he says actually many had written. So there were at least several. You don't say many if there's only two. So there were at least several written accounts of what had happened. Now, we're, we're looking at Luke is writing uh, around 30 years later after the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, this is within living history. Now, if I tried to tell you something, Mike, about history 30 years ago, and it was totally wrong, would you believe it? For instance, do you believe these people who claim that uh, man did not land on the moon? Uh, no, I believe that, that was man, 16, That was 40 years ago. Man did land on the moon. I remember the time frame. Yeah. I, was, I was alive. I was watching it live on the news that summer of 69. And uh, by all accounts, this was a real event. Exactly. With uh, the lunar landing as well as bringing them back and impossible splashing that it could down have been in faked. the ocean. Right. Impossible that it could have been faked. So Luke is writing within the living memory of, of his audience. Um, so, so there is no way that things can be faked that were publicly known. So then uh, second, now this is from this talk by Greg Keener. Uh, second, the oral sources that he, that he got uh, information from were eyewitnesses. So he says in verse 2, the things that were handed down. Now this is technical language. This is talking about um, what you were taught like in a catechism. This is what this uh, wording means, this handed down. It's a very specific term that refers to training. He's basically saying um, what you were trained in the faith to believe. So um, uh, not just, you know, what you overheard. No. And then uh, take a look at the accuracy of the oral transmission. You know, uh, in those days, the ancients were adept at memorizing things. Why do you think that was? Why do you think they were so good at memorizing things? Because they probably didn't have a whole lot of writing utensils exactly. and paper available. Paper and writing was expensive. People did have it. 
but it was not the kind of thing that you just carried around with you. You just didn't carry an extra scroll in your pocket and a, a pen and an inkwell so that you could you know, happen to write things down. If you were going to the food market, your wife sent you to the food market, guess what? She needed 30 things. You had to remember the 30 things. But that was just a normal part of your daily life. So you did it because you got good at it. And there's all kinds of uh, historically known feats of memory that people were able to perform. Uh, For instance, uh, Seneca the Elder uh, describes some that just everyday people could do. There was one guy who was giving a poetry recitation, and somebody in the audience with the, with the poetry recitation went on for 15, 20 minutes. The guy stands up in the end and says, you stole my poem. That's my poem. I wrote that. And, you know, there's a big commotion. And he says, I'll prove to you that's my poem. And he recites the poem word for word. Then at the end, and everybody's just aghast. Then at the end he says, I was just kidding. I just wanted to show you I could do that. (laughs) But those are the kinds of things that people could do just because they very carefully, they had to. That was part of living was listening very carefully and memorizing. And especially if you had a prominent figure stand up and give a speech, guess what? There were a lot of people in the audience who were going to remember every word you said in exactly the correct order as well as those people who could actually afford to have paper and pen and write things down, scribes and and so forth. So there was note-taking. There was fantastic memory ability of ancients. Um, And then finally we find that there are these Aramaic figures of speech. Now, they were speaking in Aramaic. And what we find is that there is wording in the New Testament that doesn't fit the Greek. Mm. It doesn't fit very well, and a Greek scholar says, huh, this is kind of oddly worded. I wonder why he worded it that way. But then you go and translate it back into the Aramaic, which was actually what was spoken, and there are idioms in Aramaic that appear in the New Testament that only make sense in the Aramaic. So one of them is this concept, son of man, is a very pretty, very um, eloquent way of saying things in Aramaic. And in Greek, it's kind of awkward. So uh, that's an example of uh, these figures of speech that appear. So, uh, and then the final point on this about these oral sources that was that many of these eyewitnesses were in leadership in the early church. So these were not just people that uh, no one knew about and coming up and claiming things. These were people who were known, who were elevated to positions within the early church um, because of who they were, and they were the eyewitnesses who were telling Luke what they experienced. All right, you if you are just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. So, um, more evidence for the Gospels. Um, in verse 3 of Luke's preamble he talks about the fact that he has thorough knowledge of what went on. Now, how did he get this thorough knowledge? Well, one of the ways is from Acts chapter 16 all the way through chapter 28, uh, we find um, he uses the term we. Okay, now, when he says we, he means 
he and Paul. So he's traveling around with Paul. So not only does he have uh, meet everybody that Paul meets, but he gets um, around the globe. Now he's on missionary journeys. How much time did he actually spend in Judea? Well, if you look carefully between Acts 21 and 27, we find out that he spent at least two years right there in Judea. So he had the opportunity, uh, and we know from his own statements he had the interest to go and check out the eyewitnesses, and he had opportunity to talk to Mary, to talk to the elders in the church and others about what actually happened. Mm. So uh, then verse 4, he says that we are confirming already known information. Can you read verse 4 again, Mike? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Right. So he's already taught. This is information that's already known. Now, uh, a biographer, a historian, who's going to uh, write a history, if he wants to be accepted, he can't uh, go against what's already known. You know, he can't contradict the the known accounts, or he's not going to be believed. So... Uh, he is saying, this is already well-known information. I went out, researched it, and confirmed it. So other then he talks about, then uh, Dr. Keener talks about uh, other types of evidence. Okay. Uh, you know, remember the critics are saying that the Gospels were written later, much later. And the problem, one of the problems is, and that they were made up. Now, one of the problems is, that during the early church, there were very specific issues that arose that were controversial and that different leaders in the church argued about. For example, uh, circumcision. Should uh, new believers be circumcised? Okay, this was a very big issue. Historically, we know this was very big in the church in the first and second century. How come it's not mentioned in any of the Gospels? See, if the Gospels were written later then it would be easy to add in, well, Jesus said all new believers have to be circumcised, right? Gets rid of the problem. So this is more proof that the Gospels were actually written about what was going on and not written later because people would have just instinctively added in. If they're making things up, they would have made up things that fit their point of view and solve some of the problems. So... Um, and then, you know, we've talked about in the past about how the different gospel versions overlap and slightly different wording actually adds to the authenticity because you have different eyewitnesses seeing different um, angles, different viewpoints of something happening. Well, what about these lost gospels? What about these apocryphal writings, the Gnostic gospels? We can break it down into two categories, apocryphal gospels which were essentially novels. Now, these were late 2nd, 3rd century, and this was the heyday of Greco-Roman novel writing. There was a lot of novel writing going on, a lot that had nothing to do with uh, Jesus and Palestine. But there was also some written about the, Pal- the uh, Palestinians, um, about Jesus. The problem is, because it was 2nd, 3rd century, they don't know what was happening a hundred years before them, and so they get the Palestinian environment wrong. So when you look at the apocryphal Gospels, experts can tell 
These were written much later. They, they don't know what was actually historically happen, happening. Then there's those uh, Gnostic Gospels, um, which are not really like the other Gospels. For instance, the Gospel of Thomas. If you ever read that, it's really it's just a collection of sayings. It's, it's not an uh, ancient biography like the Gospels that we have in the New Testament. And these are second century. Um, they were written to support mystery religions who were trying to adapt to the changing environment, trying to adapt to the fact that their people were being swept into Christianity and, and were adopting Christianity. So they wanted to try to incorporate Christianity into their own views. And the earliest one looks like this uh, Gospel of Thomas that you hear so much about. But even so, it's still dated to about 140 to 170 uh, AD. And again, it's not a biography of Jesus. It's just a collection of sayings. But those sayings happen to fit in with certain mystery religions. So that was a really fascinating talk. Uh, let's see. We had another talk. There was a um, terrific one on atheists, the new atheists. I think we can do this in the couple minutes that are left to us today. If you're just joining us, this is Evidence for Faith. This was done by Dr. Timothy McGrew, who's from Western Michigan University, and he talks about the arguments that people like Dawkins and others have been publishing recently in these books, Pushing Atheism. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, Dawkins in 2006 said that the Gospels were written long after the events they reported. Well, guess what? That was an argument done by atheist Strauss in 1835. Then, and, 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 the point of mentioning this is the fact that they were entirely refuted. So the old atheists made these proclamations, and they were entirely refuted um, by prominent apologists of the time who really basically have now been forgotten. So it's important for us to remember who these apologists were and what their arguments were and the amount of research that they did to find the answers. Here's another example. Dawkins said, uh, also in 2006, nobody knows who wrote the four Gospels. Well, not only is that not true, but that was also claimed by a man named Payne in 1804. Then Dawkins also said, miracles by definition violate the principles of science. Sound familiar? Absolutely. Da- if you've read your David Hume, 1748. So these are not new ideas. There's nothing new coming out. One last comment. Evolution violates the principles of science. Yes, it does. Interesting. Why? Because it's a faith-based religion. Well, I thought it was based on all the scientific evidence. It's a stretch. Okay, we'll talk about that further on another show. Thank you for listening. This has been Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. <laughs>